0: This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. This episode of The Secret Library podcast is brought to you by Scrivener. Get 20% off the desktop software by using the code SECRET at literatureandlatte.com. Welcome to episode 36 of the Secret Library podcast, where we talk about where the books come from and how to write yours. I want to thank everybody who's left iTunes ratings and reviews, and I want to encourage you to, if you've been enjoying the show, just leave a rating. You don't even have to write up a whole review, but if you click a rating, it really does help us get the show out to more listeners, and it also helps us get guests Um, on the show because they see that you guys are interested and that you are listening and you want to hear from them. So if you take a minute today and leave a rating it would be awesome. My guest today is Kim Cooper. She is amazing and I'm really thrilled to have her on the show. She's one of LA's brightest torchbearers according to Electric Literature and she's the creator of 1947 Project, the Crime a Day Time Travel Blog that spawned Esoteric's popular crime bus tours. If you guys have been to LA and you haven't been on an Esoteric tour, you're really missing out. I think we've been on about five. They include topics like Pasadena Confidential, The Real Black Dahlia, which goes through all of the kind of major locations from the Black Dahlia mystery. She also does Weird West Adams. We've done Main Street Horrors and Vice. Really worth checking out. So she's on today talking about her novel, The Kept Girl, which is the acclaimed historical mystery starring the young Raymond Chandler and the real-life Philip Marlowe. She has also written the Raymond Chandler map of Los Angeles, and she has collaborative LA history blogs, which include On Bunker Hill and In SRO Land. With her husband, Richard Shave, they also curate the Salons of Lava, the Los Angeles Visionaries Association, which are amazing events. And when she isn't combing old newspapers for forgotten scandals, she's a passionate advocate for historic preservation of signage, vernacular architecture, and writers' homes. She was, for many years, the editrix of Scram, a journal of unpopular culture. She has also written Fall in Love for Life, Bubblegum Music is the Naked Truth, Lost in the Grooves, and An Oral History of Neutral Milk Hotel. So we talked today about writing from history and how she gets inside the minds of characters. I know you're really going to enjoy it. So here we go with Kim Cooper. Okay, welcome to the show, Kim. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I'm excited because you have at least two sides of, of your identity as a writer that I'm really interested in, and I'm curious about how they work together because... As a researcher and a lover of history, and also a novelist um, who's written *The Kept Girl*, I'm curious about how those two things came together for you. It was a complete surprise to me, to be honest with you. I never <laughs> thought fiction. Me? I mean,
1: good grief! I, I'm I'm a lifelong nonfiction writer, and actually, I probably have three or more sides because before I got into this LA history beat, I was a uh, pop-cultural historian focusing on weird music and obscure stuff, usually things that I found in 25-cent bins and thrift stores. And I had a magazine called Scram that I published for many years where I would find these offbeat musicians and interview them. So when I started doing L.A. true crime research, I was doing it with the aim of writing nonfiction. And I, I had this idea about a book looking at 1947 in Los Angeles through the lens of crime as a way to tell the stories of people who were otherwise anonymous, except they ambled into these terrifying, awful experiences, which resulted in them being very well documented by the press and the cops. And that turned into a blog, which turned into bus tours, which turned into literary bus tours, which my husband hosted. And in the course of trying to contribute something to his Raymond Chandler tour, I stumbled onto this story about the Great Eleven cult. And I thought that was going to be a nonfiction book, too, but I didn't have everything I wanted in order to tell that as a nonfiction story. I wanted to tell the story so badly, so I I added the extra 10% in the form of fiction, and that's how I became a novelist.
0: That's amazing. So... Knowing how many stories you know, and for anyone who has not been on an esoteric bus tour, I think my husband and I have probably been on five. Thank you. We're kind of junkies. There is so much history and so many facts and so many details that both you and Richard know. How was it writing that as a novel? And and how I I almost envision two little beings on your shoulder. And when is the historian that says, no, 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 that happened in June, not May, and the other side that's like, ooh, but this could be really fun as a story. So how did those two work together when writing about this case? Well, which shoulder is the one that says it happened in May? Is that the right shoulder
1: or the left shoulder?
0: (laughs) I don't know. What do you think? That shoulder is definitely
1: drooping because that one pushes me hard. when, when, (laughs) When I outlined this book, I took the exact dates that things really happened on. And um, and then I decided, okay, I'm going to just make a week in the life of Raymond Chandler. I mean, I should mention I made my detective Raymond Chandler, except he needed a lot of help because he was a drunken oilman at the time that this cult was active up on Bunker Hill. And then I said, okay, what time is the sun rising? What is the temperature like? How long does it take to drive from downtown Los Angeles out to Simi Valley before there's a freeway? All of that had to be truthful. It had. Because I was kind of beating myself up on factualism, because I I felt so tied to the truth of the story. And uh, at the same time, I had to let myself go, because I was putting people who weren't involved in the story, some of whom didn't actually exist, into the narrative of unfolding a real crime that is very well documented in the newspapers of the day. So I had to find a way to make it work, and... um, It is as truthful as I can make it. I'm comfortable with that. But at the same time, when things get weird and wild and they are imagined, um, I feel like they have their own truth. If they didn't really happen, they could have, they should have. And that's the best I can
0: hope for. So where are the weird and wild points where you kind of had to fill in the gaps?
1: Well, um, Chandler in the novel has a secretary who um, he always did. He did his best work with really smart women. They didn't necessarily write his books for him, but they were sort of inspiration, colleagues, coworkers, and they gave him the push that he needed to finish things. And this young woman who is based on his real-life Paramount-era secretary, Dorothy Fisher Bishop, who I was privileged to know at the end of her life, so this is someone who was in his life about 20 years after the, the action in this novel, um, she goes out sort of on her own, to try to solve the case. She's not supposed to be doing it. In fact, on the phone, Chandler tells her not to and to come back. It's too dangerous. But she immerses herself in the life of the cult, to trying to figure out what's going on. And she <laughs> ends up going into a completely non-existent cave filled with mysteries and horror in the deep backwoods of Southern California. So that is definitely a purely imagined space. But I've had people come up to me and say, so did the cult members really have this cave where they kept bodies? Well, um, I'm really glad that you asked that because it obviously seemed truthful. I don't
0: know. It felt really real, the description of it. I, I wondered where the cave was, honestly. So uh, you're not that person is not alone in asking that question. Well, thank you. And, and you know, it's partially inspired by things
1: like the, this particular part of the Simi Valley area um, – where Harmony Hamlet was, the Santa Susanna Pass was home to three different cults over the course of the 20th century, one of which was the Manson family. And so the notion of these deep, dark holes in the ground where secrets are kept is very much part of the Manson family lore. They supposedly had this hidey hole out in Death Valley where they were stashing dune buggies for the, you know, when Helter Skelter came. So, I, you know, I think I'm kind of filtering together different cult narratives, some of which are true and maybe aren't located exactly in that part of the world, but they feel honest because that's the kind of thing that these reclusive groups gravitate towards, places where no one can find them or say them.
0: So when you found this story and wanted to make a nonfiction book, what was it about this story versus all of the other crime narratives that you know that really said, oh, this one I really have to write about? It
1: has so many really compelling paths um, in Southern California history. I mean, it begins with a young woman who comes to L.A. with her mom, um, probably trying to become motion picture stars, although we're not totally sure because they were also longtime grifters, con women. And that's um, Mother May and Sister Ruth. They're living up on Bunker Hill in the lost Victorian neighborhood, which I am completely obsessed with. They tore it down for redevelopment. And um, the younger woman actually works as a taxi dancer down on Main Street in the mid-1920s. So she's dancing with men for... Ten Cents a Pop, and having these really charged experiences where she's sort of a vessel for their lust. She dresses in Egyptian garb. She's sort of a high priestess of the cult. And they collect around themselves all of these really interesting Southern California characters. A lot of lonely elderly people who've come out from the Middle West and are just trying to find a a safe, warm place to spend the remainder of their days and spend whatever money they have. Of course, the the ladies are happy to take that money. And then people like Clifford Dabney, who's the idiot nephew of Raymond Chandler's oil company executive boss, who gives them all his money and ends up suing them, which is how this becomes a cause celeb in the courtrooms and in the press. And almost everybody in the cult is just a weirdo. (laughs) And I love weirdos, Southern California weirdos particularly. So yeah, they're just they're just that's great amazing. characters. I was I was so in love with all of them and I just wanted to know more and as I dug deeper and deeper, I felt like there was a story that that should be told, that some context needed to be provided because their story was really only told in the daily papers without a lot of context or thought. It was just what had happened that day in court. And you know, that's really not fair when you have people who are so imaginative. They they deserve a little more of an overview.
0: Well, also when it's you know, a story that happened decades and decades ago, and people aren't, you know, we have so much information blasted at us that it feels like a totally new story when you when it's the, the day's papers, but back in time. Well,
1: yeah, I mean, it's it's the day's papers and the next day's fish wrap. And some of them are hard to find, you know, the, the LA Times is the one that's been digitized. And that was because when ProQuest came to Los Angeles to digitize newspapers, the Times was the only one left. And the way that ProQuest works is they they make a deal with a newspaper, and they have the rights to the digital archives, and they make money from that, and so a newspaper doesn't have to pay to digitize its own archives. There are pros and cons with that. Some towns, you know, got multiple newspapers digitized, but we only had the most boring, <laughs> least crime-centric paper when the ProQuest people came to town. So to find things like the Herald and the Daily News and the the Express papers that were more lurid, you have to go down to libraries and try to find the reels and suffer through them
0: that's so interesting I had no idea that brings me to my next question which was what was the timeline for this project because you know if you were going into researching when the sun was up the weather of the day and all of those little details like how how long did this project take and how long was the research process and what did that look like
1: well I started by researching it for a crime tour. I wrote a tour called Wild Wild West Side, which was about um, cults and child killers and the beach. And and I actually grew up when I was very young on Venice, so it was a very personally charged part of the world. And so I had a lot of the background about the crimes, but what I didn't have was um, the way of sort of filtering it into Chandler's life. So I had to do a lot of research on Chandler, and on his relationships with women. It ended up being about a year and a half total of writing and just a lot of refining and then just torturing myself and saying, stop reading it every day, keep going, get to the next chapter, <laughs> you can edit later. Once I kind of broke through that barrier of always reading and rewriting and re because I'm very fussy, then it started moving faster.
0: So what was your, process, your writing process like at the beginning, and then what happened after you broke through? A
1: lot of outlining. Um, I used Scrivener, which is terrific. So I threw all of my digital files into Scrivener. I had to gather a lot of photographs and maps. So I spent a great deal of time finding the right images of places that I wanted to write about, and then also the maps to find routes. And then um, the thing that actually gave me the greatest leap to just writing straight through and getting through little barriers that were holding me back was something that I'm going to have to find again because I'm no longer a member of the Los Angeles Athletic Club. But what I used to do when I belonged to the club, which was Chandler's Club, and from the windows of which I could look into his old oil company offices in the abandoned Giannini building across the street, was I would do a lot of plotting, and then I would go into the saunas and spend way too much time in there thinking about dialogue. And eventually something would click, and I would actually hear their voices in my head. And I know this is when I was starting to get close to passing out, because I'd have to be extremely conscious. I'm enjoying this. I'm getting somewhere. I, I'm hearing them. It seems real, but I probably shouldn't stay there too much
0: longer. Or something bad will happen. 'Cause these are functioning saunas, right? Oh yeah. I mean I was I was in Oh yeah. And
1: and you know, they're small saunas, so sometimes there'd be other people there and some of the ladies would actually bring their bathing suits in and drive them, which you're not supposed to do. So you're you're trying to do all this this work inside your head a hundred years ago and forget the modern world, which sometimes intrudes.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, I have never heard of that method before, but it sounds really like it was working.
1: And I convinced myself that Chandler was sort of on my shoulder too, so at
0: this point I have three shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> so you need those those kind of nineteen forties fashions with the really big shoulders. Yeah, so I need those Adrian super
1: sized shoulders. It helps.
0: So you get in there, and you're hearing this, and then you come out, and you write it down. Are you writing by hand? Or are you typing into Scrivener? How is this Oh, yeah. I would together? write by
1: hand after I would be in, in the sauna, and then just take that and, and put it into Scrivener later. But I wouldn't write in the sauna, because you can't. I mean, it's just it's very hot
0: and dripping. Yeah, you can dry bathing suits, but probably yeah. don't want to have a pen getting all heated up in there.
1: It would be weird. I mean, you're not even supposed to bring <laughs> your cell phones in. I think if you brought a pen, people would wonder what you were writing down.
0: Yeah, exactly. So
1: that was a technique that worked, and it it was weird, but it was a great ritual for me, too, because I felt like I was getting out of my own head and into a, a, a sort of floating sense of the past. I, I wasn't really locked into the present. My mind was able to ramble. And it seemed very real to me. I mean, I, I felt that these people were becoming alive. A lot of them already were, you know, the ones that were on trial, the ones that participated in this cult activity. Those are all real people and they left enough of their voices in the newspaper stories and in the court records. But others, you know, I had to bring them to life and, and that's the way that I did it.
0: So how much were you able to find of the other more lurid papers? down in the library archives. Are are they all on microfiche? Yeah,
1: they're in a variety of different formats.
0: A lot of them are on microfilm. You can also get morgue images out of
1: various archives and libraries here in L.A. And um, it was actually only after I'd finished the book that I learned some techniques, which now I'm going to use in future projects because there was a gentleman named Sam Fort who wrote his own nonfiction book about the grade 11, the cult. And his came out after mine. He reached out to me. And as I read what he had done, I said, how are you finding these things? You're finding, you know, we've done digging along the same trench, but you found all of these tributaries. And it turned out that he, having been, um, I'm pretty sure, a spy in a former life, I'm not kidding, <laughs> had a lot of really interesting techniques for locating digitized material about people. Not If you want to know about Mother May, for instance, you don't search for Mother May and her name in association with any of her friends, you find two of her different friends, and you search for them together. You leave Mother May out entirely. You'd be amazed at things that you find.
0: So then you read about them, and then maybe maybe she comes in in context, or you learn about the time period. Right, or
1: you find things that those two were involved in, and Mother May, we know she was their associate at the time, so it becomes part of their background milieu, but no one who was searching specifically for Mother May would ever have found it unless you use this sort of widening circle approach. And that's how Sam was able to figure out that they actually had been motion picture producers up in the Oregon area, which I'm almost glad I didn't know it when I wrote the book because I would have had to put it in and it would have made it longer. And I I like how tight it is. I'm really happy with what, what a compact story.
0: That becomes a danger of, like, if you're able to widen and you get all of this, is there a danger of just getting lost in the history and never getting back to the writing so that the drooping shoulder kind of takes you down?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. And when you're, uh, you know, a research junkie
0: like I am and you want
1: to get it right, it can be extremely dangerous. I I had to sort of forgive myself and let myself go to become a fiction writer. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be exact it just has to be true in and of itself and truth doesn't have to have every single fact that you know the facts can inform without being revealed yeah yeah
0: i think that's a really good point yeah i think you have to come up with your own assessment of what truth with a capital t means if you're writing fiction about history yeah it's it's an interesting
1: sort of angle to take and you know there's probably five people in the world who would come up to me and say Oh, but you know, on that Thursday, it's isn't it a fact that there actually wasn't a dance at the Roseland Ballroom. So I'm, you know, am I writing for the people who are incredibly immersed in Los Angeles history or am I writing for people who just want to have an experience of feeling as if they are in this incredibly vibrant, strange moment in the past and and following along these interesting characters? You know, you have to write for the majority.
0: Were you worried about those 5 people when you were writing? <laughs> You know, I had to just, I had to write for
1: myself. I had to write a story that I would want to read. I don't read much fiction anymore, so that, you know, that required some pretty heavy leaps on my part. What is a a fictional story that I would want to read, since mostly I do read nonfiction? Well, you know, it's true enough in the spirit of the past, which is what I'm most interested in right now, and yet it is, you know, a fictional story about characters who aren't real doing things that didn't happen. It, you know, it works for me, and I, I feel like that's enough. If I'm happy with it, I can send it out into the world and see what happens.
0: I want to take a break for just a minute to talk about our sponsor, Scrivener. So anyone who's a regular listener of the show, you'll know that pretty much anybody who comes on and talks about the software that they use, they talk about Scrivener. I've been a Scrivener user for years. I first discovered it when doing NaNoWriMo. Uh, National Novel Writing Month, and they were a sponsor. I absolutely fell in love because there's nothing I hate more when working on a project than being forced to write from beginning to end. I love to jump in, try different scenes, and you can have a different section in Scrivener for each scene you're working on. So being able to work on the scene that you're in the mood to work on, the part of the project, and being able to jump to write where you want to go is huge. Um I can't think of a better one to work with, so I'm delighted that they are supporting the show. You can check it out again at literatureandlatte.com and get 20% off the desktop version of the software with the code SECRET. Now let's get back to Kim. So you spent a year and a half writing. It sounds like there must have been numerous drafts during that time. And then what happened next? What was the journey from finishing the story and feeling satisfied with it to getting it into finished book form.
1: Right. Well, my husband Richard and I are very much collaborators, and we have been ever since we reconnected (laughs) 18 years after we knew each other in college and hated each other's guts. And when we did reconnect in the early 2000s, I stopped doing music writing because I wanted to collaborate with him on things, and our musical tastes are so different. So we got into this L.A. history beat, and he always comes up with ways that he wants the work to go. So he knew I was working on the book. I you know, I had an agent. I certainly could have pursued it in that direction. But we talked about what it would look like to start our own imprint, Esoteric Ink. And it immediately occurred to me that it would be interesting to use this sort of ancient literary technique of subscriptions and get people in our community who get on the bus, people who come to our lectures, to be participants in the publication. So as I was writing and editing, we were also researching what it would look like to, you know, create a book on a subscription basis. Print it locally. We had to find a, a really wonderful family-run print shop here in the Southern California area where we could interact with them and pester them and get it to be just exactly what we wanted, and do these special deluxe covers for the um, subscribers edition. And, yeah, so that, that was a big part of it. And then figuring out what it would look like to distribute beyond our ability to sell them on the bus. Just the whole path of becoming self publishers very different from publishing a zine where you just, you know, print it down at the local Yellow Pages print shop and then send it off to your distributors.
0: Yeah, and very different than self-publishing just for a digital format because these are beautiful physical books. Well, thank you. We worked
1: very hard and we had to do a whole separate run because we made some mistakes at the beginning. Well, if you have the edition where the colophon's on the wrong side of the the page, that's uh, my fault.
0: Oh, no. Yeah, it happens. It'll never happen again. Exactly. So how did you feel about being a publisher? Like, did that end up being something you enjoyed? Or was that like, okay, yeah, that was necessary. And it felt right? How did that work in the community? Well, I mean,
1: we're publishers of our own work. So we're not taking in um, submissions. Um, But I like it, actually, I enjoyed being able to interact with all of the oddball characters down at the print shop. And, you know, printers are very 20th century figures. There aren't many of them left, and they're, they're all set in their ways and funny and delightful, and just hanging out in the print shop was fun. And I was able to actually shoot video of the book coming off the giant press, which was exciting. And
0: oh, I got amazing. that up on our YouTube
1: channel. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's beautiful. I've always been hooked on factory porn, I guess you call it. Do you remember when you were a kid watching shows and they would have, like, what it looks like when they make pencils at the factory, and it's just so hypnotic?
0: Yes. Yeah, yeah. I remember so one about making saxophones. Ooh, that's that's a complicated one. Yeah, and they were pressing the metal, and then they played the thing at the end, and I thought it was just the coolest thing I'd ever seen.
1: Yeah, factories are cool, and, and seeing things mass-produced is really exciting, and the notion of something coming off the press, and then they fold it, and they cut it, and they put... A cover on it and it's suddenly a book like you've seen a million times. I I don't look at books the same way now. I understand where they're coming from and how it happens and how
0: many things can go wrong. Tell me about the cover because the cover is really beautiful and the design is so good for the time that it's talking about and one of the frustrations I hear from authors I talk to and hear all the time who were, went with a, you know, a traditional publishing house is, I didn't get to pick the cover. I didn't get a say in the cover. And they probably shouldn't,
1: because if other people are investing all of their money and resources and assets and putting a book out, they know what the market wants. And yeah. you know, I'm sympathetic to the, the big publishers that want to come out with a cover that's going to work for them. I, I'm also sympathetic to authors who hate their covers. We had this really incredible opportunity because, um, you know, being very light on our feet, I could reach out to an artist who I liked. I've always done this. When I published Scram, I worked with as many comic artists as I could, and I was able to get covers by people like Daniel Close and Peter Bagg and, you know, a dozen some really terrific artists And in many cases, buy the artwork from them after they made the covers, which was always fun. So that's something that's been in my life for a long time. I saw... A drawing, a color drawing that Paul Rogers had done of Angel's Flight Railway, the funicular in downtown LA that I'm very, very fond of. And I just, uh, I saved it as a flat file because I thought it was a beautiful piece of work. And then I discovered he was local and that he teaches at Art Center College of Design. So I had him in the back of my head as someone I'd like to work with if I ever needed to do some artwork, to commission some artwork. And Then when the book was a little farther along, I thought, well, I should ask him. And then I researched him and realized he's a very high-powered artist who, you know, he's collaborated with Bob Dylan. He's always doing New York Times artwork. Um, He has an agent who you're meant to go through. I was pretty sure I wasn't going to be able to afford him. But, you know, it can't hurt to ask, and I knew he loved old L.A. So I just swallowed my, my nerves, and I reached out to him and asked if he would consider doing the cover for... This novel about the young Raymond Chandler, and he very kindly responded and said he'd be willing to read a little of it and see what he thought. And you know, to my great amazement and delight, he liked it enough to to work with me and work with me on a very, very affordable basis. I'm, I'm so lucky. And then what came out of that was not only this beautiful cover that he made. And, he, you know, he's a perfectionist, so he wasn't just going to do the cover. He insisted on doing the complete wraparound, including the spine, because he wanted his design to look great. And then he got the opportunity to do the new Raymond Chandler map with the Herb Lester people in London and asked me to write the copy. So I got to collaborate with him again on this little miniature piece, which is very much a uh, companion design to the kept girl book cover with Chandler's face and the... Um, the Wilshire building instead of the Los Angeles Times building and the silhouette of the woman that's on the cover of mine.
0: That's so amazing. I th- I think that's a great example of, yes, it never does hurt to ask. And then it sounds like you were very much on the same wavelength in terms of your sensibility and how precise you both wanted to be about the project.
1: Yeah, it was a really lovely marriage of, you know, my interests and his. And I, I can't imagine the book without that cover. I'm so, so grateful. And it it really gave me a wonderful boost towards the end when, you know, the writing was done and it was just the, the grunt work of getting it printed, getting it printed right, working with Richard on um, laying it out in latex, which he did, which is an extraordinary programming um, tool, and replicating as best we could the look of the interior of the Postman Always Rings Twice edition <laughs> that we purchased to be the inspiration, and all of these other sort of nitpicky things that we were doing to try to make it come out as a physical object that really reflected what we, what we thought it should be. And so to have this wonderful piece of artwork and know when we're done, we're going to have this, this is the cover. And know that people would be so excited by it because it's just beautiful. You have a cover like that. People are going to pick your book up and
0: what more can you ask? Exactly. So how did the subscription model work? I'm really curious about this because I found the book later, having been on the tour and hearing about it and got the book after that. I would have loved to subscribe, but I'd love to know more about how that model worked.
1: So um, we have a mailing list, and that's how we market our tours. We have a lot of people who subscribe because every week or so I'll send out a newsletter with all sorts of links about L.A. history and preservation and culture, things that I think people should stay on top of. And a lot of those folks do get on the bus. So as we got closer to having the book ready, I let people know there's this project coming and you have an opportunity to be part of it. And for the cost of a little more than a bus tour ticket, you will get your name in the book, the deluxe edition of the book before anyone else sees it, a digital edition if you want it, and an invitation to a special party and a walking tour. And so a lot of the people who are part of this community thought that sounded like a good deal. So we were able to gather essentially half the cost of our printing ahead of time and have this group of about 65 people uh, and not just people. I mean, there were there were a few um, special collections libraries that I reached out to, and they too um, obtained it, which was great. And just going into it, I knew that there was going to be a page at the back which had all of these names, which is really nice. I mean, it feels like every single one of those people is part of this process. And you can look back at books from the 18th century and see the same thing, usually members of, you know, royal families and the upper crust of England are sponsoring books and it's how books were published. You couldn't really publish a book without that kind of financial support. Not long after the book came out, we had the party and we had a cake and we walked around the downtown LA locations that feature in the book and I talked about it. And it was
0: really nice. That sounds like it was wonderful.
1: We'll do it again. And, we'll uh, do another historically
0: appropriate We'll do another
1: project of this sort.
0: Yeah, so what are you are you looking into any other stories at the moment? Is there anything cooking? Well, not fiction right now um, because it's our 10th
1: anniversary as a tour company and we really feel it's time to write a guidebook to Los Angeles to 100 locations that you really need to understand to understand what this city is all about and why it's so worth caring and learning and loving. So that's the current project that Richard and I are doing together and that will definitely be a subscription project. And then The next novel, unfortunately, I got a little knocked off my path because the moment I started researching it, I stumbled onto the existence of this lost Raymond Chandler work, um, this operetta that he wrote with Julian Pascal, the man whose wife, Fissy he would steal a few years later. And the discovery of this operetta, um, I I just stopped in my tracks and started focusing on trying to stage that, which is probably not going to happen anytime soon. We'll see. But it it uh, interfered pretty severely with the research into the sequel. I do want to do a sequel, though. I think these characters deserve it.
0: I think, uh, well, I can certainly see how this would be a symptom of being so immersed in history is that you keep finding amazing stories, especially the history that you're participating in, because I am always blown away by the cast of weirdos and phenomena and things that was going on in Los Angeles it's like we think the world is crazy now and you look back at crime bosses and corruption and cops working with everybody it's just amazing how it is. That the, was. Most,
1: the most extraordinary people in the
0: world came to California and then when they got here they just realized
1: everything they ever wanted to do was possible and And great stories come out of it. you know, they're not all awful people, some of them are just incredibly sweet. But they can't help it; their impulses are twisted, and they leave these wild stories behind i mean i I think the women from this cult were actually pretty well meaning. I don't think they intended to defraud anyone; they just they really did hear the voices of angels and needed to act upon them, and all of these terrible things that happened happened because they believed that what they were hearing was right. That's the Southern California story,
0: yeah. It seems to be a world story too that you know, I think people always do what they think is the best thing, but it doesn't always end up going so well.
1: Yeah, your aim may not be as true as you think it is. Yeah. But only history will tell.
0: <laughs> exactly. So you've got the operetta going and then the tenth anniversary book. So what what um what's the timeline on the tenth anniversary book? We release it during the year of the anniversary or is it just to commemorate it?
1: Um yeah, well we'll We'll try to get it out during this year. I'm, um, Richard has almost completed his notes. for the, He wanted to get everything to me at once because a lot of them have strands that interact with each other. These locations can be miles apart, but their stories and their narratives are associated. So I'll have everything on my desk and probably in the next few days and then start digging in. And I'm looking forward to it because he's, he's a terrific researcher. He's re- really draws some amazing parallels between these these locations and the public policy decisions that can protect or, in many cases, harm them. It's, it's very much as with everything we do. You know, people get on the bus and they think they're in for stories about true crime, but they walk away with a passion for preservation and history. And if you can preserve the past, then history stays alive. That's what we want to do.
0: Definitely. Well, I think it makes such a difference when you learn about a story and you can see the building that it happened in, or you can, you know, look at Raymond Chandler's office and write about it and see Mm -hmm. it still there versus something built 50 years later that's not as attractive or not as meaningful.
1: Absolutely. And these places come back online. I mean, historical spots are hot again. Right now, Chandler's office building, which has been closed and a mess for 30-some years, it was being hoarded by these property developers who just sit on buildings. They don't care for them. Um, It's now being restored. And probably by the end of the year, it'll be possible to go inside and and have a gimlet, which is just something I desperately wanted to do while I was writing about this building. I had to write about the building just looking at 1920s-era photographs. I couldn't get inside. All I could do is peep in the window from the windows across the street at the athletic club and look at these very old photographs and try to imagine what it was like, what the space felt like.
0: So this may be very helpful for doing a sequel. Oh, yeah. It's going to be a hotel. I might even go stay a night, even though
1: I just live a couple of minutes away.
0: I don't know. I think that sounds pretty glamorous. I think it would be really fun to stay in there and to see. Do you have any idea how true to the original era they are with their restoration plans?
1: Um, it is a building that, sadly, and and I could see this from the windows across the way, was gutted. So mm. on the ground floor, it has beautiful coffered ceilings. It was a bank. Um, the ceilings survive, and it has really magnificent um, exterior doors, which were largely uh, deteriorated at the bottom from people peeing on <laughs> them over the years. Oh, but in terms of you know, but the the basic layout of the space is going to be the same as it was, and I'm hoping that the um, The marble floors are still there on the upper stories, which I read about in the 1920s uh, magazine articles about it. But the main thing is, you know, the the molecules are there, the space is there. This is the building that Chandler, as a young oilman, walked into every day and did his job and learned about crazy rich people in Los Angeles and got all the inspiration for these beautiful books of his. So I want to go in there. Whatever's left, it's precious.
0: Why do you think that we're seeing all of this interest in the past now. Like, we went kind of pretty far away from it in, like, 70s, 80s, and now we're coming back to it. What do you think it is about today or now that's bringing us back around? That's
1: a good question.
0: Well, obviously, um, we've never had
1: better access to historical material. I mean, the notion that you could simply have some links that you save and you can go to them and look at archival photographs. You can digitally search a variety of newspapers. You can do genealogical research into people and start Ancestry.com and those associated sites are amazing because people scan their family photographs. Sometimes people who you're researching in a crime story, suddenly some grandniece will have put up photos of their weddings. These things are amazing to find. And I think that Maybe we live in just such a high-powered, fast-moving era that the notion of these moments in time that are so much slower and more peaceful in their way, even though many non-peaceful things happen there, they're very appealing. And of course, people in the past looked fantastic.
0: Yes. Yes. The fashion fashion is definitely an appealing part of it.
1: Definitely. And I don't see us headed back in that direction anytime soon.
0: At least not en masse. I think some of us are holding on to it
1: Oh and thank you
0: (laughs) Yeah I know I just think wow people are out in the street In their pajamas it's kind of amazing It's so comfy
1: and it's so schlubby Well that's the world
0: I know I think the problem is That I'm guilty and many of us Are guilty of not knowing what to do with our hair That seems to be the The Achilles heel at least for me In terms of dressing like a grown up Well you know Gloria Swanson would tell you That turbans are your friend I think they are. Yeah, everyone looks great in a turban with a jewel in the middle. <laughs> I think I'm going to have to try it. So good, come get on the bus in a turban, and uh, I would love to. I'll buy you a gimlet. Would... <laughs> that sounds amazing. I am. I am in. So, what are you reading now that you're really excited about? Because you said you read lots of nonfiction, and this is a novel you'd want to write. So I'm curious about what's what's on your nightstand at the moment. Well, I have a book I'm super
1: excited about right now. Um, it's by L.A. Kaufman, who is a friend, and it was 20-some years in the making, a project that she researched and put on the back burner, and it's such an essential book for this moment. It's called Direct Action, and it's a history of protest from the Vietnam era to the present. Wow. And this is, she, she's an activist. She's been involved in a lot of very large protest movements herself and a scholar, No one has ever put this material together before. And to actually see where these large um, mass movements against the Vietnam War, against Iraq, Occupy Wall Street, how they grew, how they were organized, how they were infiltrated in some cases, how they failed, and the ways in which these mass movements actually splintered and then moved out and influenced protest and activity today, I think it's really important for this moment. And hopefully the book will get into the right hands and help inspire people as uh, we're heading into one of the most challenging moments in American history. And I think some good things are going to come out of it. I think it's going to bring people together.
0: I hope so. And I think that sounds like an excellent read for the moment. I'm definitely going to grab that one. Yeah. And it's a lovely little book. It's it's
1: compact. It'll sit in your back pocket. You can take it to the protest if you need to. And it's got a really great day glow cover inspired by the ACT UP graphics. So it, it's... It's funny, I mean, she was so tortured about not having completed this book when she first did the work, and then to come back to it and have it come out at such a perfect moment. It makes you think that there are there are forces pulling the strings that you can't understand, and maybe as a writer you try to make a project happen and it doesn't, and, and
0: maybe it doesn't happen for a good reason.
1: You know, maybe these things come when they need to. They exist in the world so that they reach the right people. That's a very powerful thought for me.
0: I think so, too, especially for something like that, and especially for something that's a historical moment. I mean, I hear this all the time, books that are like, oh, I tried to get it out. I didn't control it. I didn't control when it came out. But right when it did, it seemed to be the exact right moment. And it's amazing how that happens.
1: Yeah, I I think that all we can do is channel our creativity and put as much as we can to make them the best possible works. But you have to trust that things happen for a reason, and no one does anything in a vacuum. You're always interacting with others. There are forces, some of which you control, some of which you don't, and you just have to have faith. If you're an artist, you're you're making art, even if you don't ever finish anything. The making of art has power in the world. I'm convinced of that
0: too. Oh, that's that's really inspiring to think, because I think there is this feeling when a work is in progress and people feeling all this pressure to think about publishing or to get it out there before they've even finished the story, that it's better to just stick with the process and to be fully present in it until it's time to consider that part of it. I think
1: so. I mean, it, it's, people don't spend a lot of time praying anymore, but this is the closest to prayer that many of us get to. And all we're doing is spending time in our heads and trying to craft something something that's beautiful and meaningful and that will live beyond us. I think that's that's worth doing. It really is. Not everyone has a book in them, but maybe everyone has this sense of creativity in them.
0: Yeah, I think so too. I think that's a beautiful thought. So thank you so much, Kim, for taking the time to talk to us about this whole process. Um, I know that the the research archives and and all of the elements that went into this book will be hugely fascinating to everybody. And if you haven't read The Kept Girl, I highly recommend it. It was really a fascinating read. And the, the space and time was just so alive in the whole story as I was reading it. So thank you for all the work you put into it.
1: Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for reading and for the opportunity to talk with you. Enjoyed it.
0: Thank you for listening to The Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.